talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Hello, and welcome to another fun episode of More Like the Worst Wing, the show where we discuss Aaron Sorkin's seminal work, The West Wing, from a uh, 2020 modern uh, leftist perspective. I am Dave. And I am Stu, drinking a beer. <laughs> and uh, we are on uh, episode number, with uh, which is entitled Night 5. I've stopped counting the episode numbers because I keep getting them wrong. <laughs> But this, this season one is... we are entitled to get them wrong. <laughs> yeah, stupid Isaac and Ishmael. <laughs> uh, but this one is entitled Night 5, which is referring to the number of nights the president has been without sleep. The president is suffering from insomnia, is the main plot of this episode. And so, our cold open begins with the character of Stanley, the therapist that we last saw dealing with Josh and Josh's post-shooting PTSD uh, coming into the White House to presumably under the cover of talking to Josh for a follow-up appointment, uh, but is actually there to provide therapeutic service to the president to see if they can help cure his insomnia. And they make a big deal of it being like, we need we need to have this smokescreen of it's Josh's therapist, so you know Josh is the one who he's, he's coming to see. Definitely not the president. The president is good-brained and in charge. Right. And like, <laughs> yeah. We're, we're yeah, okay. there's a lot of... There's a lot of... Now, to be fair, I guess it would be a bit of a story of, like, president gets therapy because politics and media is so stupid. However, they... You know, the level they go to, to to hide and cover it up is ridiculous. Going so far as to have Josh give him a tour of the White House... Uh, as combination cover slash dropping trivia hints to us, the viewer, (laughs) about, wow, isn't the Resolute Desk cool? Yeah, and I mean, but, and also to be fair, like, Adam Arkin, who is the actor who plays Stanley, um, does an extremely good job of basically just kind of deadpanning a, like, a quiet exasperation about the process. Yeah, and and how weird it all is, yeah. (laughs) And it's pretty clear from the outset, I'm sure he figures it out because he's a smart guy, it's like, yeah, I'm not here to see you, am I, Josh? Like, right. Sure as, as we'll see, as we will see, uh, he's pretty good about figuring most things out, mm-hmm. including the president. Uh, but we'll get into that later. The other major subplots of this episode uh, involve Sam dealing with a new staffer who has been brought in over the weekend, a female staffer who witnesses a flirty interaction between Sam and Ainsley. Um, and comes up to Sam and politely tells him that, hey, I think you were a bit, you know, demeaning to Ainsley when you hit on her when you said she looked good in a sexy dress. Uh, and we have a whole awkward, straw feminist sort of <laughs> Sorkin-esque idea of what fem- he thinks feminism is that uh, we're going to dig into also later in this episode. <laughs> Then um, we have a CJ plot line wherein um, there is a missing reporter that is brought to her attention um, in the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, she's like alerted at a press conference that uh, this guy was he on missed, assignment. Uh, a couple of deadlines. Yeah, yeah, he was in Kinshasa and um, apparently was chasing down a story and just left the capital. And she's like, why would he leave the capital? And his editor, I'm assuming... Uh, someone, the, yeah, somebody an editor for sure. them is like, well, he's a journalist. They're they're gonna chase down their leads. 
which completely fair. And then, um, yeah, he goes missing and CJ gets to chase that up. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then the final major one is with Toby, uh, who is writing up some foreign policy language for a big speech the president's about to give to the UN, I believe. Um, and he is, uh, this is a very post 9-11 kind of moment. Uh, Toby goes full Islamophobe and starts writing about how we must scourge the planet of uh, radical Islamic terrorism uh, in this foreign policy speech. So then his wife, uh, sorry, ex-wife, uh, Andy comes in with a request from a few Congress people about putting in much, much gentler language uh, about not doing that kind of thing and saying, hey, we need to work with the Arab world and realize that calling them all radical Islamic terrorists is actually really, really shitty. Yeah, and it it's... Anyway, we I mean we honestly don't even really need to spend that much time. Yeah, we can we can we can wrap that part up right now. Yeah, actually, let's, all let's that do happens. that. <laughs> yeah, so like uh, Toby goes like full on like up to eleven on this though, and like has sort of what is almost seems like an existential freakout um, because he's worried about uh, Islamic terrorism so yeah, much, and like in the projection involved of him, I don't know, I. As, as the token sort of, the token nominally Jewish character. Right, because Josh is too, but Josh doesn't talk about Jewish things ever. Well, yeah, and like it's, God, it's just some awful fucking typecasting because Co- Toby's uh-huh. like, Toby's like the Richard nebbish. Schiff looks, yeah. looks Jewish. Looks like the media perception yeah. of, of a Jew, yes. Yeah, and they, they put all these words in his mouth and she's like, and honestly, Dave, you are culturally Jewish. Like my family-in-law is culturally Jewish. It's like, honestly, like the, the leftist or the democratic Jews that I know. Yes. We're very and much we just have, like, this is, this is the opposite. This is, of- <laughs> this is insane garbage. Yeah. The, the yeah. hard line, like right wing, you know, your Zionist right wing type Jews would absolutely be agreeing with Toby in this kind of moment. Thankfully they represent a small minority of American Jews. Um, which I am gratefully thankful for. Uh, most American Jews are very much on the left-wing side of the political spectrum overall, are reliable Democratic voters, uh, and I think I've even seen some polling and surveys and stuff that indicate they are generally more left-leaning even than other average Democratic voters. Yeah, and I think, and I, I just made a note on this, where it's just like, it seems like Toby is entering the phase of the show where his writing, the people who write for him and write him, are just completely abandoning like a coherent political set yes. where it will come down to the fact that Toby is the token curmudgeon at some point and it doesn't matter So he gets to take all the angry stances. Exactly. It doesn't no matter what No matter what they are is. politically. Yeah. I get what you're saying. Yep. So he can be angry for the labor people, but also angry against Arabs. Yeah, <laughs> and know? or like about overreach of regulation. And it's like, well, okay, but would would season two Toby actually go down this road? And I think it becomes, as we get further and further down into the latter seasons, one of the sort of the hallmarks of West Wing criticism is it's just like Toby goes completely off the fucking rails. (laughs) Yeah, there's no consistency whatsoever. Like, if you try to chart a coherent political ideology on Toby the character, you're going to go insane (laughs) trying to do it, (laughs) Um, which is great. Yep. Uh, so yeah, that ba- that pretty much wraps up the Toby stuff. Um, 
also, there's a small, tiny subplot with Donna helping out with the reporter storyline. Um, yeah, she also, doesn't she do something with Josh? She gets a job offer. Oh, right. In that's a bar. okay. Yeah, that's it. So uh, she meets up with a dot com friend. This is a nice little like time capsule bubble of where dot coms <laughs> yeah. were, because the dot com <laughs> crash had happened, but then like certain new dot coms were starting to actually take off, and these would become like the big solid stable ones. Yeah, and that's the that's the implication here is that he has one of these new ones uh, that's actually going to do well, and uh, he pulls the classic, and I love this move every time I see it, TV move of writing down her new starting salary on a napkin. Uh, and handing it to her so she can react to a, a comically large amount of money that we, the viewer, never see because our imagination will always do a better job of filling in that figure. Um, yeah, and you also noted here that this is basically every Obama boy fantasy rolled up into yes. one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, all these fucking Obama boy lanyards who fell in love with West Wing and, and came to D.C. to follow Obama, this is their ultimate fantasy, is after doing a few years of power brokering around under Obama, they'll get approached by some uh, friend who runs a startup.com and offers them a comically large amount of money to be issues director Yeah, <laughs> uh, so they can fucking sell out super hard. It's a, and, you know, Donna is in the show's canon. She's considered to be a low-level staffer. And it's just like, oh, I could be Donna, too. Gophers can definitely enter the halls of power. We promise, guys. Right. Yeah, I love this idea that her being Josh's assistant makes her competent enough to be, like, issues director for a big political website. And, and honestly, who knows? Maybe it does because I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to stand not... on pedigree. But it's like... sure. But it's, it's I, just, I just such personally a lie. think it's it's <laughs> such a lib, it's a, such a lib fantasy of like oh you've been doing all the right things so here comes a bitch big rich powerful person to reward you for all the good things you've been doing. Yeah. Oh, it's incredibly DC. Yeah. So uh, let's take another quick break, uh, or our first break, I should say, and uh, we'll come back and dig into a couple of these issues more. Promising to make heads roll. We cheer them on, but asbestos is affecting our breath control. The less we know, the more they fabricate. The easier it is to sell souls. There is a new price on freedom, so buy into it while supplies last. Changes need to be made. No more curbside baggage. 7 p.m. curfew. Racial profiling will continue with less bitching. Okay, and we're back. Uh, so let's dig into Sam's plot line. So the the kickoff is Ainsley comes up wearing an evening gown or something because she was at some sort of social social function, and Sam says the line, uh, "Wow, Ainsley, you can make a do- a good dog break his leash." And she just kind of like haha laughs it off as like, "Oh, Sam, you're being cute." Uh, our unnamed, or sorry, she is named our staffer named Celia. Okay. Uh, who is the temp, uh, witnesses this interaction, sort of raises an eyebrow, but says nothing in the moment. Uh, and then later on, when Sam is introducing himself to her because she's new to him, uh, she's just some temp they brought in from another office for the week, um, she brings up, hey, uh, earlier when you said a good dog would break his leash when seeing Ainsley in the dress, uh, I think that was kind of demeaning. Uh, and she basically just kind of lays out her explanation, and Sam goes, 
Sam, in the moment, I will say, takes it fairly well as like criticism goes. He yeah. pushes back a li- he pushes back a little, which is you know which one would expect. But then he just sort of is like, oh, okay. Uh, but then immediately, instead of like internalizing this criticism, uh, his first. Uh, option is to go to Ainsley and be like, I didn't demean you though, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's um like Sam is is always characterized and it's this weird dichotomy with the character where he is supposed to be regarded as this um sort of like young genius, like this head like head and shoulders above, brilliant legal mind, and then it's coupled with this almost um I mean completely unaware like wide-eyed sort of blah yeah kind of personality bah? Bah? Where, bah? yeah it's, it's a mayor pete type of personality here <laughs> so um and he's he's just i think in the um in the toolbox of the show and of the of the cast he is used to their credit to explore issues like this but it is usually done in a very ham-handed way. <laughs> like this time. <laughs> yes, just like this time around. Okay, so as they dig into it further, you know, Ainsley says, no, I wasn't offended, and Sam kind of, like, doubles and triples down and is, like, super goony about, you're sure? You sure you weren't offended? Are you really sure? And, like, gets, like, crazy intense about it, which is, of course, the best way to handle these things, by the way. Uh, yes, is absolutely. To <laughs> definitely flip out and go, like, level 10 on everything <laughs> and uh, and immediately start asking, like, everyone, did I offend you? Did I offend you? <laughs> it's to have a near a tandem about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's interesting about this really is that it's this like little time capsule of a time period that was post sexual harassment training being coming more commonplace in the workplace uh but well being pre me too uh so like we had identified the problem to a certain extent but uh, weren't really, like, taking any actual structural actions on the problem other than uh, the aforementioned sexual harassment training. Yeah, and I think it's a it's actually a, a really quintessentially neoliberal thing. And, God, I, I'm using the word. Sorry, guys. I'm deploying the N-word here. Um, <laughs> we'll have but to it's, that. <laughs> it's, it's, a very, it's a very capitalist society thing where it is atomized to an individual's responsibility. Mm-hmm. And Sam, frankly takes that uh, representation of the individual in this very systemic issue and like draws a sharp divide and says like, well, I wasn't, I didn't but intend I to am, do this. I am a good person. <laughs> and, and you validate my perspective. So there are two individuals in this interaction right. and thereby both of us are now good, so right. we can and just two, move on. And two, and two outnumbers the one complainer, so we're fine. Ooh, yeah, and I, di- I didn't even think about that, where it's just yeah. like... Because he brings Ainsley to come in to the complainer and say, like, look, Ainsley, tell her you were not offended. Which is, like, you know, it's kind of sidestepping the whole complaint to begin with. Yeah. Uh, but but then, so then we really get into, and I this is the part of the episode where I looked up, who wrote this one? I'm going to bet this was a Sorkin-written one. And lo and behold, I was fucking right. Yeah. Oh, God. 100% written by Aaron Sorkin, because as, as after Sam deploys this, hey, Ainsley was fine with it, defense, 
Woods, uh, the straw feminist character, then goes into uh, goes in on Ainsley and starts attacking her with. Oh, well, I don't know why you're going to let people uh, reduce your power by uh, invoking your sexuality. Uh, and gets into this whole thing where Ainsley then gets to fire back with, uh, I'm actually a cool girl who likes sex, uh, which is the, just the ultimate like Sorkin fantasy <laughs> yeah. of what he thinks women should act like in the workplace. Is like, I love being flirted with, and I'll have sex with all the male oh. co-workers that I want to. Oh, no. <laughs> it's just like, yes, the, these women who definitely exist are absolutely okay with me treating them like pieces of meat. Yeah, holy shit. Um, So it's it's just a mess of, like, if you just read Sorkin's, like, projecting his weird psychosexual hang-ups into this, uh, like, you can't help but read all sorts of demeaning things about Sorkin. And based on the way he's written female characters in everything else he's done, it doesn't look good for him. (laughs) Yeah, and, like, I'm not going to lie that, again, as sort of a function of a time capsule, you were mentioning, like, post-sexual yes. harassment training pre me too like the the issue nothing was done about the systemic or structural problems here and i can see at a time in my life where um again i am not a woman and i do not like even i can't even begin to conceive of these things but i can see at a time in my life where the um impact the quote-unquote um, empowered and powerful women in my life would project this sort of image to be like oh i'm just you know i'm just one of the guys i'm just here to treat me like any other guy friends and you know we're gonna be cool about it now this this was like the colorblind idea when it came to sexism essentially yeah like what if we just ignore race you know what if we just act like girls are one of the guys you know but like again neither of those solves anything yeah, and I, yeah, I like that I, I, comparison. Going going back to the disclaimer, yeah, neither of us are attacking actual feminism here. Uh, we want to make that clear. We are attacking Sorkin's straw, stupid idea of what he thinks feminism is. <laughs> and to be fair, if that if that conceptualization of a of taking power from the established like the patriarchy, frankly, worked for given women, great, like. If if you made that work for yourself, that's sure. incredible, and we're not going to shit on that experience. But at the same not. time, as we're saying, that is, again, an atomization of something that is a completely societal and structural issue. It's a s- systemic issue, absolutely. So, yeah, the episode itself just... And then mostly just ends on sort of a comedy button. of They even bring in um, Charlie to kind of be like a comedy button of yeah. like reacting to like when Ainsley says, I like sex, he's like, hello! Like, it's very... Which, like, yeah, let's... Bl- black I mean, reaction gif kind of thing. <laughs> like, yeah, I was thinking you know? that too. <laughs> like... Just this isn't this is this is not quite and like there's no there's no subtext of minstrelsy here but it's like no uh 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 uh-huh. like oh I feel that and it's just yeah. like oh god you can feel it coming yeah it's yeah uh, so and basically it all ends on kind of a comedy bow of and then uh what's her uh, the the staffer is effectively the owned one. Uh, and just has to sit there in shame for for trying to improve the workplace, which which sucks because she is she is like clearly they set her up as being younger 
hipper, right. like more right. in more touch with, with this stuff. With what's going on, you know, and a- whereas Ainsley is, you know, a, a Republican who graduated from an all women's college. Yeah, well, and there's there's that gross bit too, where it's like it's saying that Ainsley's view is is could be considered more it, valid because the dis like the discrepancy is one of party ideology. Right. Whereas it's actually something that is completely universal (laughs) to this other class or identity. Where it's, yeah, it's saying like, Democrat women are frumpy and will call you out. (laughs) Republican women are blonde, happy sex kittens. Yeah, God. And just, this is yet another reason why the Ainsley character is just sort of not a good one. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) So anyway... I think that pretty much wraps up uh, this topic. Let's take another quick break and then we'll uh, dig into something else. Another thing that comes up that is, again, an identity that we cannot claim in any way, shape, or form is basically the um, darkest Africa (laughs) stereotype that's involved with chasing up this reporter who, again, like CJ is approached after a press conference um, by either a co-worker or an editor or something. His boss, His boss, yeah. And says, hey, haven't heard from this guy. Can you help us out? And so... They do some... Uh, I, I do like he brings up, you know, CJ, the first 15 minutes in these kinds of situations, it's crucial. And she's like, uh, he missed two deadlines. His first 15 minutes was two days ago. Was two days ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, why bring like, it up then? <laughs> yeah, why even say... Why write the line into the show? I, Whatever. Um, so, anyway, they, they do some, like... Man- maneuvering behind the scenes and to try and talk to with, get money to the right people or uh, i think they say they have to deny sanctions to the to the kind of people which is great because it gets into the sanctions and imperialism that toby is ranting about uh, in the next room over about doing to the arab world yes and that's sort of like it's an interesting tie between those two things where but and that the trope the excuse me the show treats is completely separate there is no like right Co- like there's no correlation between those two things yeah, but meanwhile you have, you have toby going <laughs> on, off to plan turning the arab world into a kind of environment where this sort of thing would happen there too yeah so you you get an interaction with generic you know black black man extra who has a couple lines <laughs> coming a, in to talk who with. has the hollywood impersonation of a congo accent <laughs> yeah and and talking with um it's cj and is it leo leo it's leo yeah yeah so cj is the like the one who is more angry and like you know reacting in this but then it it comes back to leo at the end where leo sort of hammers on the point cj made at but in a more reasonable uh less hysterical way if you will since he's an old white man (laughs) Uh, and the, and thus underselling the importance of CJ's line about uh, where do we send the money. Yeah, and there's, I mean, so to be fair, regardless of the realities of the, like, the, the realpolitik of a Congolese state, which, let's be clear, has been actively fucked with for 
200 years mm-hmm. by various, you know, imperial powers mm-hmm. and is still just, I mean, holy shit. I read, uh, you gotta read King Leopold's Ghost. You gotta read, um, there's another book that I'll put in the show notes of sure. this shit. It is, it is one of the most egregious examples of colonial abuse and lack of good faith recovery efforts Mm. of the international community on the entire planet Mm. so you get this guy who gets a couple lines he comes in and talks with cj and leo and cj in the process of doing this a operates under the assumption whether this is true or not that it's like oh of course the government can fix this because they're all in cahoots (laughs) with like these radicals Uh uh who do kidnappings yep and shit and uh, in the way it's presented to the viewer you are expected to be like, oh yeah, of course that's how it works, right? Because you know, yeah, you believe CJ. Like, there's no, there's nothing implying that CJ is wrong in any way, shape, or form. Which is somewhat gross, yeah, out out the gate. And because who the, I mean, who the fuck knows anything about in again? This is two thousand four. Like, that uh, your average viewer oh, of this not show even. doesn't doesn't know shit about this like, is, the DRC. We're, we're still like a few months after nine eleven here. This is two thousand one, baby. <laughs> Or, wow. or early so, 2002 at the latest. Yeah, and so this is just completely contextless, and it's dropped in your lap as sort of a reference to, again, like a stereotypical, like, ooh, this is the land of warlords and right. jungle. Yeah, and so, like, the implication here is just that, like, any white person, don't go to Africa. Uh, you will get <laughs> you will get kidnapped and killed. Uh, that's, that's what the show is telling you. Yeah, and, I mean... The guy, the the even the actor who is playing the Congolese, I'm assuming emissary or ambassador, something ambassador, like that. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, is has a like they have him adopt like a smug affect. Yes. To be like, I sort of like I understand what you are saying to me, <laughs> <laughs> and and we both like nudge nudge wink wink in the tone of this conversation that is particularly just like it's gross because. They are taking advantage again, somewhat like they do with Charlie, of the fact that this is a black man saying, like, right. well, we agree with your it, your fucking shitty characterization of how these countries of, of work. Our, of our country. Yeah, exactly. It's the, uh, it's the old line about political cartoonists inserting their white man words into a black character. Like, I yeah. said this, a black man, a white man. <laughs> a white man. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, so, and then... It's just, and it's... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the dramatic uh, device of killing off characters that we've never seen before. So this is a, a thing the show has done plenty of times before, uh, although sometimes we have gotten a photo of the guy, like with the uh, one Navy pilot doctor guy who died. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That we, you know, we got a photo of him. This time we get his wife to react to, to bring on like the sads, you know, when we find out that he died, uh, then she, you know, she gets to cry and we get the emotional you hear the music, orchestral score right, and, and, yeah. and the show is telling you, be sad, be sad now. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't work nearly as well with these characters that we've never fucking met because inherently you have to just at least it can work even in a one episode this is what the star trek red shirt was you just had to show the guy call him jones and then we're like yeah. oh yeah hey jones yeah that's a human i i have empathy for a human and then when he gets killed by the gorn or whatever in act one you go <laughs> oh i guess the stakes sure are serious now that's right them gorn they're bad news <laughs> um so 
But then it just doesn't, like, so it works when they do it with, like, Mrs. Lanningham at the end of season two, because we've gotten to know and love Mrs. Lanningham, and she's played by an actress that we've seen and heard talk, and and we have built up a fictional empathy for this fictional character. And so it hurts us more when they are fictionally killed and taken away from us. It just doesn't work on these one-off episode people when you don't even show them. Like, they can't even cut to, like, this guy in the Congo, like, getting nabbed (laughs) or something as, like, the cold open, because that would be, like, too expensive a shot to do, I guess. So they just want to talk about it. And just narratively, it just doesn't work. Yeah, and your note about, like, they mentioned that It'll be okay, ma'am. Your husband is employed by a billion-dollar corporation. <laughs> it's just like, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It'll work out just like every other person who's employed by a billion-dollar corporation. Way to fucking reassure them out. that, like, oh, so when they're looking at the bottom line, they're not going to fucking miss one employee, <laughs> even a fucking yeah. little? Oh, my uh, God. Well, and the implication then is that, Oh, yeah, sure, this giant okay. company so gov- cares about so his So the life. government might have failed you, but don't worry, corporations are here to save you. That's right, Coca-Cola's paramilitary guard will show <laughs> well, up and, well, and save the day. SEAL Team Coke Zero will yeah. we'll we'll <laughs> fucking come in and rescue your husband. <laughs> we're, we're, we're deploying Ted Turner and his crack <laughs> team of operatives right now. Like, and... In an, in an extension of that to, like, the writers, that implication can be made of the very idea of this character who is literally invented in order to get killed. Right. The writers don't give a shit about it either. Yeah, I can't even so, remember the fucker's name, you know? like. <laughs> and, yeah, it's just convenient to the narrative in order to introduce, again, another disgusting and weird stereotype. About the fucking darkest Africa. Yeah, so just real real gross subplots all around in this episode mm-hmm. um, uh, that are not the main plot. Fortunately, our main plot is pretty good, so let's take, a, yeah. let's take another quick break and then we'll dig into the actual main plot of uh, the president's therapy session. And so we dig now into the bulk of the episode and something that we keep cutting back to throughout as it is, like I said, our main plot, um, which is the therapy session to deal with the president's uh, now uh, eponymous night five of uh, insomnia, of being able to unable to go to sleep. Uh, which started as the episode uh, previously on Helpfully Notes for Us right after the night when Toby yelled at him for um, and asked if his dad hit him. Uh, mm-hmm. All the stuff that we discussed in our previous episode. Yeah, and it's a good thing they do like note that because this would be coming out of the blue Correct. otherwise. <laughs> right. So because it, it basically takes Stanley, our therapist, uh, the entire episode of sussing it out from the president, who is being very reluctant to share this particular tidbit that it all started after this fight with Toby. 
Uh, he keeps dancing around the issue. They ask up a lot of common questions about, you know, hey, are there, you know, environmental factors that could be affecting your sleep? You know, are you, you know, the president smokes a cigarette at one point, you know, Stanley's like, hey, you know, those are going to keep you up too. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, but I, you know, I've been doing them for years. He's like, oh, okay, then that's probably not what's keeping you up this time. And, you know, they kind of go through the standard, like, what changed recently, basically, which is the base, best way of diagnosing this kind of thing. Just like you would diagnose a computer problem almost like, okay, well, if you're, you're getting an error now, when did the error start and what did you do? <laughs> yeah, you, you kind of start from first principles and be like, what's, what's different now and is that the root of the problem right so yeah i want to say before we dig further in that you brought up a good point in our discussion pre-show of this is a very good and nuanced and well done exploration of what therapy is uh, or talk therapy at least of where just you know stanley just asks nice kind of open-ended questions or leading questions and lets bartlett do the bulk of the thought work involved in, in coming to the solution of what is actually bothering him mentally uh, and causing this insomnia. And it's interesting that Sorkin did this part so well, and it, uh, as you had said, it sort of made us both think that he's probably had some experience with therapy. You know, I've, I've been to therapy myself, many people have, it, and he wrote this part so well and then just completely missed the ball on every other subplot <laughs> in the episode. on all the other stuff, but did a very good job of portraying an accurate... A, a surprisingly nuanced job of uh, of doing this. So hey, credit where credit is due, Sorkin. One Good out work, of four. my man. I uh, <laughs> I hope you get much more of it. <laughs> so and yeah, I think Adam Arkin carries. I mean, I love Adam Arkin. So like yeah, he, he does he carries a great, this off great job. extremely well. He's got the sort of and and you know the the relationship with your therapy, if you will is like just as important and establishing that rapport and the level of trust can be right. pretty difficult, but they do again a pretty right. good job using, of using gentle humor is a good way of like getting people to open up in this sort of a context as well. Um, and what is interesting is he immediately grasps onto the fact that the president is so used to having his power dynamic respected that the best and quickest way to get him to kind of like, treat stanley more seriously is to not respect that power dynamic at all yeah uh and so he is he is uh at one point he says i am the only person uh other than your family who doesn't give a fuck if you're the president <laughs> yeah and there's a line it's like fine i get my 375 dollars an hour anyway we could talk right. we could talk it's, about football yeah no they, the line is actually fantastic it's uh the, i'll tell you what i tell everyone it's your money it's about to be my money, and I sleep fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is which is great because it the, the president's fucking habit of getting into like stupid trivia, cute stories or whatever is like detrimental to him in this episode. And this guy is the one of the first people to call it out. Is like, all right, well, you waste your own time if you want, or do you want me to figure out why you can't sleep? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it cuts to the core of his personality because I bet. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't use that approach with a person who wasn't Bartlett. So like you get and people who have religiously watched the show and understand the president's personality as it's written will also be like, that would be the best way right. to get this dude to level with me and, and not like kind of go into wonky, you know, trivia yeah. Bartlett. 
Right, yeah, right. and because they have to they have to really get to the core of it, which is they start digging into like, you know, hey, do you feel stress? And they have a big funny thing about like, haha, no, that's for normal men, mortal men, the lesser men who feel stress, not the men who become presidents. Yeah. They don't feel stress like real great man of history kind of shit here, where he gets into like, I have abilities that no other man has. <laughs> um and like <laughs> that's like a literally a line is he says, I have abilities yeah. well and so there there's a little bit of a you know the, the 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 lib fantasy here where it's like well you know you did this and it wasn't easy and he's like right. yeah but lincoln like lost half the girl or like united the country or whatever and he's like it's not the same it's like yeah it's actually really not the same has yeah. bartlett doesn't done anything right he's <laughs> like uh I, it's like he's like lincoln uh and I just want you to insert the clip here. Mm-hmm. Right. This is a hell of a curve you get graded on now. Lincoln freed the slaves and won the Civil War. Thank you. Next. And what will you be singing for us today, Mr. Bartlett? Well, we've had six straight quarters of economic growth. That's not easy. Okay. It's not easy. I believe you. I think I've made tough choices. I think Lincoln did what he thought was right, even though it meant losing half the country. I think you don't do what you think is right if it means losing Michigan's electoral votes. And, like, that nails it. That nails the fun- fucking fundamental of the show. He's like, oh, but I had six quarters of good economic growth. It's like, uh, <laughs> That's Lincoln- it, I'd forgotten. <laughs> yeah, Lincoln fucking split apart the country to save it and was willing to ris- risk half the country. And and even still, Lincoln's not a perfect president. We're not getting into that here or there. But it just spits a perfect failure on, like, the neolib fantasy of, like, even in Bartlett, their best neolib ever, can't do fucking shit for the country. <laughs> Good, good job, you guys. Like the Dow Jones is up fifteen percent in the last. And it stayed four that quarters. way for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very proud of our economic team for minimizing inflation. Oh my god, yeah. So and then so then they finally dig into the whole like you know your father hit you. You're still trying to impress your father, even though is is it confirmed his dad's dead at this point? I I Do, can't imagine he's not. Oh, he's not dead? No, I cannot imagine that he is alive. Sorry. Oh, okay, yeah, I get what you're saying now. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, they never they never confirm it one way or the other, but it's definitely hinted at strongly that Bartlett's dad is now dead um, because they keep, you know, the, the, the final thing they come to here is, like, you've been doing all of this, you know, the become a professor, become a Nobel laureate, become a governor, become a president, all just trying to get your daddy's approval. And it's never, ever, ever going to happen. Yeah. And that, and that's the big like moment where, Oh, okay. This is why I'm not sleeping. Uh, and, and the implication, even though we don't see it is that the president sleeps fine from here on out. Yeah. But I think again, absent the content and, you know, the, the show's canonical approach to what is good in politics, the whole interaction throughout is great. And it's two great yes. actors that, are, that mm-hmm. are carrying it off. So major hats off for this like subplot of this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it was the, the one thing that, since they kept coming back to it, it made the rest a lot more bearable to watch. <laughs> yeah. um, because you do, like, okay, we'll get back to Alan Arkin and, and Sheen doing their thing. 
Um, yep. And they do, they do a really good job with it. One last thing I do want to note on is just sort of uh, Bartlett's sort of toxic masculinity attitude towards therapy at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's sort of like pater- boomerly, paternalistically dismissive of the idea of even talking out your problems. Uh, but it clearly is taking this as like a last ditch effort because nothing else is working to get him to sleep. Well, yeah, and I think, I mean, again, sort of a time capsule thing. This is very much a, um, you see this, if you'll forgive me, this trope in a lot of media at this time. It is like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm a manly Th- man and I don't therapy, need Therapy, you know, that's for, you know, effeminate men. Yeah, you know, people, guys guys who can't Gu- earn a guys, paycheck or hold guys, down a we job. Guys, we get, look, we get that you have some mental problems, but you should probably just deal with that with a good scotch and, you know, maybe uh, throw around the pigskin a little bit, okay? <laughs> yeah, like, you can work through it. Just, uh, you know, exercise yourself to exhaustion or maybe, you know, shoot up your office. You'll be fine. <laughs> the, hel- the healthy way of dealing with <laughs> yeah. problems. That's right, okay. Yeah. It's, uh, there's this big fear of talk therapy that, again, like you said, very time capsule uh, yep. of the time. But yeah, overall, this subplot is the only good one in the episode, and as we've repeatedly said, both Sheen and Arkin do a great job with the West Wing-style delivery. This is the stuff that people actually enjoy the show for, and that they their minds blank out all the bad stuff, and just latches onto these good bits and makes them think, oh, West Wing was a pretty good show, if you, if you don't think about it too hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you don't examine it at all, well, right. you know, it's good to have on in the background. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's take another final break and then we'll come back and wrap up our episode. That's about it for this episode. Um, in case you didn't listen to the last one, it was me solo talking about my experience in Iowa. Frankly, I was talking it was really, mainly really good. It was really main- good. Well, thank you. <laughs> mainly about a negative experience I had in Iowa Very um, during the yeah. during the Iowa caucuses. I would like to say that Iowa itself and Sioux City, the people there were really wonderful and just incredibly welcoming. Um, the oddly large Hispanic community mm-hmm. in Sioux City, Iowa. This a is uh, Bernie's Bernie secret sauce, by the way. <laughs> it is 100% the demographic that's going to deliver us the presidency, mm-hmm. but they were all in the tank for Bernard, super welcoming, just wonderful, lovely people. I had a great time, worked with some incredible staffers. Um, shouts to my fellow volunteers. If you found this show, um, keep listening. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm back. I was a little disappointed in the outcome, obviously, <laughs> and we all? particularly, yeah. particularly the uh, the sheer incompetence with which the attempted rat fuck was carried out. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, it's it's been an interesting dynamic because what's funny is a lot of the posting I saw was like, well, okay, so caucuses are suck and are anti democratic for all the reasons that you brought up in the last episode because of the lack of anonymity and privacy 
but at least they're transparent. Uh, and lo and behold, that that did help to a certain extent. But then New Hampshire just happened, uh, where the primary process is quote unquote not as transparent, since the votes go into a black box or what have you. Uh, and yet Bernie won <laughs> comfortably. So yeah. huh. I, I I think the the concerns about rigging uh, during the actual primaries and not caucuses was a bit overblown. Uh, or that or they the Dems are as incompetent as rigging as they are at everything else. <laughs> Yeah. Like the, the the two conclusions you can have is that they are doing this blatantly or they're doing this incompetently. It's like either way they need to be eliminated. Yes. Yeah, either either one is not good. Uh though the incompetent one is much funnier. I will say much that. Much funnier. The comedy option. Yeah. And given the world we live in, I I personally lean towards incompetence, but obviously there's some malice in there too. It's not just one <laughs> yeah. nor the other. Uh, and anyone trying to delineate the two entirely is probably trying to fool you. Uh, but yeah, in uh, good news, Bernie did win New Hampshire. Uh, don't listen to anyone who br- finger wags about margins or bullshit like this. He fucking won. He beat eight other candidates this time. Uh, it's a whole different ball game. We're on to non-old white states now. For real. So Bernie's uh, only going to perform stronger and stronger. Uh, in extremely recent breaking news, when it comes to Nevada, the Culinary Union with their famed endorsement, uh, we were all speculating it was going to go to Biden, and they just recently came out and said, we're not endorsing anyone. <laughs> uh, but we are... I had not seen that. We news. are a little worried about Medicare for All, and you probably shouldn't vote for Bernie, but which is hysterical. Yeah, God, the disingenuousness of this. Sh- and again, let this be taken as another data point to be scrolled away. The discrepancy between rank and file and, and leadership mm-hmm. in unions. Yep. It falls to corporatism because just like it, any other institution. It sounds like they were going to endorse Biden, correctly realized that endorsing someone who's going to get third or worse in Nevada looks fucking thumped. stupid as hell. Utterly <laughs> uh, thumped. Uh, they, they polled... Um, membership it sounds like or at least did a sort of feeler of like okay so who would you want us to endorse it came back overwhelmingly Bernie and then, <laughs> and then uh, leadership said uh no fuck no we're not doing that and came out uh. with this we're not endorsing anyone statement um, which is by the way newspapers endorsement places keep doing these fucky endorsements where you endorse two people or no people or like the concept of democracy or whatever because they're all hilarious please keep doing them <laughs> and and we we've all been calling that this would happen over and over again and sure enough you're delivering in spades yes. good job everybody thanks for continuing to prove us right i love it i yeah. enjoy being right all the time it's fantastic we're right more and more these days folks Don't aren't we we love it we love being right folks yeah don't don't settle for the power and the correctness that you have continue to amass it like that this and this is actually like the the fundamental thing that it seems like is that all of these nominally good institutions like you, you know your unions your i don't know your minority representation groups are so 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 focused on the necessity of defending what they've won mm-hmm. that they cannot envision a, a better world <laughs> where you could expand on that right. power right in that victory where having bernie in you know the presidency would be a huge boon for union membership all over the country <laughs> as, <laughs> as we have our first actively pro-union president <laughs> yeah um and so just don't let 
a stunted imagination get in your way. Correct. Just a better world is 100% possible and we're going to make it happen. Hope is revolutionary. Despair is reactionary, as we always say. Uh, so Absolutely. Again, thank you for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back next time with, I'm not even going to look up the episode, but we'll be back with that one. And uh, <laughs> uh, as always, you can uh, drop us a comment in our thread. Uh, if you found us a different way, you can shoot the show an email at theworstwing69 at gmail.com nice nice and uh we'll be back next time with another episode of the worst wing catch y'all soon bye bye the wild dogs cry out in the night as they grow restless longing for some solitary company i know that i must do what's right sure as kilimanjaro rises like olympus above the serenade What's deep inside Frightened of this thing that I've become